Recovery Independence Podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today we'll be talking about how to effectively translate military knowledge to financial services organizations. I'm joined by a very special guest, Jim Combs, who is the CEO of National Advisors Trust. Welcome to today's episode. I am joined by a very special guest, uh, Jim Combs, who is the CEO at National Advisors Trust Company in Kansas City, Missouri. We join you in in very, very interesting times. There is quite a few things going on both from the perspective of uh, a global pandemic. There are questions around uh, some of the things socially within uh, the United States. And we've moved into a work environment where the normal day-to-day face-to-face operations that are so important to traditional financial services and the delivery of advice have been changing rapidly to become more of a remote situation. So first and foremost, Jim, I want to thank you for for joining me uh, in this discussion. And I just want to check in with you, see how things are going in Kansas City and uh, how you and your family and and the people of of your company are kind of trying to address the, the current situation that we're in right now. Well, thanks, Austin. Uh, first, for the opportunity to join you on the podcast today, and uh, and for your concern, um, I'm pleased to say that all the employees at National Advisors Trust in our three locations here in Kansas City, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and in Houston are all safe. Um, we have a number of remote employees in other cities around the country, but uh, uh, these are definitely interesting times, and uh, we have luckily been able to maintain uh, our normal business operations and not have any interruptions in service during this um, COVID-19 crisis. And uh, we're busy working on reentry plans as uh, the stay-at-home order here in Kansas City was lifted on May 15th. And so we're probably going to start having select employees join us back into the office uh, starting in the month of July. Interesting. Now, I know that you started from a perspective of, I guess, your professional life. When you leave home, your your, your life begins, for lack of a better term, professionally or, or outside of your natural environment with your attendance at, at West Point. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and what drove you to choose to enter into the United States Military Academy? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. You know, the, one of the things that uh, this COVID-19 crisis has probably caused many of us to do is spend more time reflecting about, you know, your personal and professional life and taking the opportunity to reach out to friends and family more often. And uh, yeah. and your question uh, really resonates with me because I had a chance to speak to people going back to my academy classmates that I haven't spoken to in a long time. But, um, yeah, I grew up on the south shore of Long Island, and um, my path to West Point really wasn't wasn't by design, which I guess for many of us, you know, life uh, is something that happens uh, while you're busy making plans. So, um, (laughs) so, you know, I was really kind of brought up in a commuter neighborhood uh, in Nassau County, a lot of blue and white-collar workers, and, um, yeah, I was surrounded, you know, by – a lot of influential people in my life uh, who were that I, you know, use as examples as servant leaders. So in my family, the spirit of community service 
was emphasized and our life evolved around, you know, our parish and CYO sports, uh, the volunteer fire department. Uh, my dad was a carpenter, so obviously work was always the center of our lives. And, um, also, you know, the American Legion. So, um, a lot of influence by patriots and people who serve the community and, um, you know, were very influential in my formative years. Uh, but most of all, um, I had a couple of mentors, and my primary one during that time was a neighbor who was a captain in the U.S. Naval Reserve. And um, so he's the primary influencer and taught me early on, not only personally, but also professionally, how powerful having mentors is along the way. And so I attended my first Army-Navy game in 1975. I never forget it because it's one of the coldest days of my life in the, the old JFK <laughs> Stadium right on the river in Philadelphia. And uh, we stood for, you know, the entire three hours. And um, I think I still have the program from that game. And uh, after that whole experience, um, that was pretty much it for me. I, um, you know, was a freshman in high school at the time, and, and I was you know, an athlete. And so um, a couple of years later, my sophomore or junior year, I uh, started to get recruited to play college lacrosse. And so I was invited to a number of campus visits, and um, I went to West Point early on. And uh, once I got to meet uh, some of the people uh, in the program and some of my future teammates, uh, it sealed the deal. So I, I never actually made it to the Naval Academy. I, uh, I ended up canceling my visit. And um, from that point on, uh, my whole purpose is to – you know, get my applications and um, do what I had to do academically to to get accepted to the military academy. And so I left the house at 17 when I graduated in high school and uh, haven't really been back to Long Island, you know, except to visit family ever since. That's a very powerful story. And I agree with you. This The situation that we're in, if there's a silver lining has definitely caused, at least for, for, for me, and it sounds like for you as well, you know, periods of self-reflection along with the desire to, to connect more closely or reconnect with, with old family and friends. And when I think of, I have a very, I guess, small perspective on um, West Point. Growing up, I had two friends that I played sports with that ended up going there. One of them was one of the most phenomenal athletes I've ever had an opportunity to play with. I mean, this is a guy that could do a standing backflip in the outfield. He could throw the ball on a line from dead center. He was really fast. He's, he was someone that I looked up to not only because of his um, focus on the sport. I saw him his senior year, similar to what you're talking about, training to go into the military academy. And I was just, you know, for lack of a better term, in awe of what he could do. And then we had another friend who was very interested in going to uh, West Point, ended up going there as well, but is not somebody that I would suggest was uh, overly physically gifted and or I think for the most part of high school wasn't someone that I would suggest was necessarily focused. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting. The person who had that clear focus and determination, and that's all they wanted to do, ended up not lasting very long in the military academy. And my other friend, who although he was interested in it, um, didn't have the physical skills and didn't necessarily have that focus all throughout his early childhood as as singular the way that the other one did. And when I asked both of them, you know, what was the difference, predominantly the one that made it through, he just said that he wasn't going to quit and that he got it in his, his mind no matter what happened, he was going to stick it out and he was going to prove to himself that he could accomplish something. And I suggest this story because I want to ask you a question. As you were going through this process and you think back to, you know, your, your earlier years and you probably had similar situations where maybe the first time 
you, you got into the campus and, and you saw some of your partners, you're like, that person's going to make it. <clears throat> How much of a, of a, of a factor was just the mental toughness and making through the military academy? That's a great question. And I, it's funny that your personal experiences are, um, marry up with, you know, my experiences having gone through it is, um, that's a kind of a truism. Um, it really comes down to your your grit, yeah, and your ability to just adapt. And um, most people who uh, end up graduating will say they'll probably, if they had the choice, they wouldn't do it again. Uh, but they don't regret having done it. But it's really about that commitment, that deep desire not to fail, and um, and they they design the whole experience, whether it's military, academic, or athletics, to uh, push you to the limits to get the best performance out of you without crossing the line to where, um, you know, it's not achievable or you just believe you're set up to fail. And those are valuable lessons when you're running a company or you're starting a company or, or if you're trying to transform a business in terms of how to get, you know, a mix of diverse talents and get them aligned around a single purpose, uh, share a common goal, um, promote a culture of teamwork, you know, get the best out of them every day. And there's all that experience going through the military academy as any service academy, actually. Right. And, you know, it never hurts to be a good athlete. Uh, obviously, if you can get the, the physical part down, uh, it makes the military and the academics a little bit easier. Uh, but going through the academy is a what we refer to as a core squad athlete is a is a different experience than the average cadet. Um, so I was fortunate to, you know, play for a Hall of Fame lacrosse coach with Dick Attell, and uh, have teammates that we made the NCAA tournament three out of our four years and were ranked in the top five I think three of those years. Um, so we got exposed to you know what it means to be part of a winning program and um, what traditions and best practices that uh, even though a new group, you know, we had a new team every year, um, he managed to get the best out of everyone, found a way for everybody on the team to contribute. Because uh, you can imagine, you know, um, putting in the time to compete at a Division One level and then uh, not, you know, putting up with everything you have to put up with at the military academy and not getting on the field is uh, – tough to stay committed and uh he was just a master at getting the best out of everyone on the field and even though we probably were slightly less talented some from some of the other programs at the time we uh made up for it in physical conditioning and toughness and and uh, you know it's proud proud to be part of that army lacrosse family yeah i mean you mentioned two really important concepts the first that it's somewhat of a buzzword today around grit and then <clears throat> the ability to through your story about you know your experience in in the on the cross team your ability to overcome obstacles and i think you need both particularly in the environment that we're in right now i mean there's so much uncertainty both from you know just the perspective of health new ways of interacting with clients the markets, the volatility within the markets, the unknown. And so, <clears throat> you know, how have you taken the lessons that you learned from your time with a, with a great lacrosse team? And how have you tried to employ those or, or utilize those effectively with the people that work with you? And I use the word with you because I think based on, you know, our, my knowledge of you, you know, there's a difference between working for someone, working with someone. For those people that work with you, how do you get the best out of them in today's environment? Yeah, that's a great question. And in today's environment, sure, sure is uh, is as challenging as they get. I think, um, you know, first off would be that um, shared sense of purpose uh, yeah. that you know tends to galvanize people. Um, and, you know, I think the other piece that's really uh, for my team recently, um, 
the most important competency uh, over the last 12 weeks has been adaptability. Right. And, uh, and resiliency. And that's something that, you know, you just don't turn on and off. It's, it's something that you build up over time. And I think it's, you know, that competency is fueled by trust um, between each other and a shared sense of purpose. And if you have those things, they deliver results in times like these. And so I'm, uh, you know, proud to say I'm part of that team and we've been able to do it so far. And, uh, I think what's even more challenging about this is, you know, so unpredictable about what's next. And so um, the military, uh, you know, teaches you that uh, the value in planning is in the preparation because no plan yeah. survives contact. And um, and so we were prepared. You know, our business continuity plans were up to date. And uh, it was a simple matter of uh, – adapting to the current norms and conditions, uh, making decisions quickly. And uh, we pride ourselves, and that's another hallmark of the military. It teaches you to uh, empower people at the lowest levels with the authority to make decisions. And um, my role as a leader is really to shape the culture and shape the ecosystem so that people can operate that way. And you, you were an athlete as well in college, and you know, you know, you put your time and your effort in in practice. Um, when it comes game time, if if the, you rely upon the coach to tell you how to jump on a ball in the outfield, um, you're never going to get to it because it's too late. You have to rely upon right. muscle memory and instincts and anticipation based upon knowledge of the game. And all those things really translate through today with anticipating customers' needs based upon intimate knowledge of their business, Um you know, if you wait to be asked, um, there are too many obstacles right now to be as responsive as you'd like to be. And um, we're just lucky that we've been going through periods of rapid growth and um, been transforming our business over the last couple of years that we were probably better prepared than most uh, firms in that we were conditioned to operate this way, just out of a byproduct of our normal business plans. Right. Over the last couple of years. You know, it's one thing that that I personally struggle with and, I, and I'd love to, to get your insight into it is a person that reaches some level of success, <clears throat> particularly if you're a type A personality and you have maybe a background and experience that has put you in a situation where you've had to overcome obstacles and or work really, really hard in order to achieve something, when you see other peers or other individuals that are operating in any number of, of scenarios, that could be, you know, I'll use a, a basic one, you know, working out in the CrossFit class you're in, all the way to what we're talking about in a professional environment, and you just see that they're they're not giving their all. Forget about them reaching your level or them reaching whatever, you know, self-optimization that, that's possible. How do you, in a way that is not defeating, help people to understand that they're capable of a lot more and then at the same time be able to understand at some point maybe you reach that that climax that they're they're not willing to go uh, much more in that particular environment because they have other things in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's um yeah, that's one of your major challenges as a a leader and a manager. Um first I think it comes down to fit. Um in most cases in my career, my experiences have said that you know, there's very few occasions that you run into bad people, uh, but very often People are in a, in a bad fit with a role. I always I always say that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I'd like to do today? I'd like to go to work and do a bad job and have people and our clients be upset with me. Nobody does that. You're right. You're right. right. Nobody does that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it starts with um, really understanding your talent and having your, your manager's um, – know them personally as well as professionally and um and starts with setting clear expectations and if you have that level of trust and that dialogue um 
you know, if you're in alignment from the outset, it prevents a lot of problems from happening. The other part is just, you know, we uh, have a tendency as people to always think we have to work on our deficiencies. And what we try to do at National Advisors Trust is um, focus on what people are good at and put them in the roles where they can leverage their strengths versus, you know, constantly thinking that you need more development and to work on the things you're weakest on. And we're lucky enough that we've grown a lot in the last three years where there are opportunities where we can move people where they can uh, keep growing but still uh, leverage their strengths and, um, you know, can grow professionally and personally within the firm. And um, that's important in financial services because uh, yeah. it's a relational business. It's not, We try not to be transactional. And knowing your clients and that level of stability is important. And so that's a, that's a difficult balance to achieve in a fast-growing firm is to, you know, keep, keep your good people in place and uh, keep them challenged. Um, but as far as high standards go, um, my experience both athletically and even in the military – uh, which has, you know, extremely high standards because the stakes are high. If you're not paying attention or you're making a mistake, you know, someone can get seriously hurt or killed. So right. you have to take it seriously. But um, it, it, the best part is peering each other up. Um, you know, it's, it's everybody's responsibility. Uh, if someone's not, uh, you know, following protocol or someone's not carrying their weight, in our culture, we like to emphasize, you know, people, people peering each other up, which is, you know, approaching people in a constructive way and uh, yeah. encouraging them, reminding them about, you know, what they should be doing and uh, getting the best out of them. Uh, because as a leader, you can't be everywhere. And that goes back to my earlier comment about um, it's more about shaping the culture and the ecosystem and empowering people throughout because um, that, that's so so critical to getting scale and uh you know in the ira industry and just wealth management in general um that's something we're all struggling hard to achieve is how do you deliver advice at scale and um you can't do that unless everybody is doing their part and you have a lot of people you know supporting each other when uh you know throughout the organization yeah i mean i i really really like that concept of, of peering people up. It's the first time that I've heard that terminology and it makes, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's a said in a different way, creating a, a system by which the other members of the system in a safe way can hold people accountable. And that happens in all organizations that are strong. Also like what you talked about for lack of a better term, you know, around the diffusion of power or, you know, again, to use your exact terminology, empowering people at all levels within the organization in order to, to make changes. You know, when people come to Dynasty for an interview, you know, one of the things that I tell them is you'll make an impact on this organization. We're not large enough where you're just a number. The question is whether or not the impact that you have within the organization is positive or negative, and you'll get to decide that. And I don't mean negative. Maybe I should think about the words that I choose. Maybe that's not the best way to, to express it in an interview. But uh, it's true. You know, the, the people that we bring into our organization, and, and I can attest to your organization as well, what you said about finding good people and putting in the positions to succeed. You know, the individuals that I've worked with at National Advisors Trust have been phenomenal, really, really good people, which is the basis of a lot of the things that we do in financial services. And sometimes we get lost from that, right? Because we're in an industry that places a lot of emphasis on the quantitative analysis of different elements, whether it be capital market returns or analyzing different securities. I mean, there's a whole host of really smart quantitative people that are in our industry but I think just as important is the whole EQ concept and being able to relate to individuals, particularly for the types of businesses that, that we both have, where you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is ensure that our collective clients are able to serve their end clients. And in order to do that, a lot of times you have to deal 
with their frustrations, with their challenges. You have to be able to problem solve, but you have to do it in a way that's very humanistic because without having the ability to empathize with people, and if you try to do things very robotic, you can run into a lot of problems because you don't really form that relationship. And it's been you know, my experience that people are willing to forgive or, un- or be more understanding to partners that have proven themselves over time to be relationship versus transactional. Because the moment that things fall into that transactional side of the business, you're only going to be judged by that last transaction because that's the way in which you set the relationship up. And it's tough because both of our companies are in the business of making money, right? We're, we're not a nonprofit, but it has to be done in a way that is a long-term relationship and meaningful to our clients. And again, I can say that you've built a, a team that understands that and does a really good job of, of building those relationships. So I'd like to, to switch gears a little bit. You know, First of all, you spent five, almost five years of service to our country. So, you know, thank you very, very much for that. And then you came back and you decided to, to move into financial services. So, you know, I'm interested, you know, of your, your mentality, getting out of the service and coming back to, to civilian life. What was it about financial services that, that you're interested in? Yeah, well, thank you. Before I uh, move on to the question, Austin, I do want to thank you for that feedback. Um, feedback is a gift, and uh, I know my team will be pleased to hear uh, all all your compliments. So thank you for that. Sure. So uh, yeah, the transition um, out of the military into civilian life is um, not an easy one, and uh, it was a difficult decision for me. I have to tell you, there's no more fun in the world than to be a company-grade officer in the military. Um, so I was <laughs> having the time of my life and uh, <clears throat> was out in Monterey, California, And though, even though I wasn't there very much. Uh, when I was there, I was there long enough to meet my wife. And um, it was a really you know, interesting time where I was placed at a crossroads with a career and a personal decision I had to make. So I got offered command of a field artillery battery, which at the time is what you work hard for. Uh, but I had recently gotten engaged and started thinking about, you know, what's next and, um, and you know, how, our, how Susan and I were going to spend our future together. And so um, I decided to turn down the command because uh, at the time they were very scarce and I didn't want to take that opportunity away from somebody who wanted to make a career in the military. And Consulted with a former commander who was a mentor of mine, and if when he realized he couldn't convince me out of my decision to pursue a career, um, he um, he had retired and he offered me a position at Computer Sciences Corporation to help me make that transition and not have to be under pressure to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I spent a brief period as a government contractor on the Field Artillery Command and Control System project. Um, out of Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, and that got me back to the East Coast, closer to my extended family in the New York metropolitan area. And um, after about 15 months of a lot of information interviews and and studying the market, um, I, I just found financial services to be the best industry where I could, um, you know, make an immediate impact because of my past leadership and management experience, uh, my background as an engineer coming out of West Point, as well as, um, you know, just uh, how financial services relied so much on technology that I was really comfortable. Um, So I really uh, had my first opportunity in the operations side of the business in treasury services at Bankers Trust Company in New York. And I was uh, second, third shift lockbox manager. So uh, <laughs> made some interesting times in uh, managing people from 5 p.m. to you know 8 a.m. is is an adventure in New York. But uh, I have a lot of funny stories and experiences to share from that two-year experience. But um, I quickly um, you know made an impact because I joined the organization in the midst of a process re-engineering exercise and I was given responsibility to make an outsourcing decision and um, 
I made the recommendation and they uh, we implemented it over the course of a year or so and quickly worked myself out of a job. But I started to get a reputation for getting results. And, you know, Bankers Trust Company at the time was just filled with extraordinary talent. And that was the time where I really got impressed. But, you know, but I think today is referred to as a day one mindset because every day you walked into Bankers Trust, it wasn't, yeah, no one cared what you did yesterday or last month. It was, what are you going to do today? Yeah. And so it was uh, really important. It really accelerated my transition because we probably accomplished the equivalent of what most people would do in 10 years in my four years there, uh, which culminated with a joint venture that we formed with some local banks to provide uh, outsourcing services to agency and uh, community banks on the East Coast. And so that was my first taste of kind of a, a startup and an entrepreneurial and um, and the outsourcing business. And so I uh, I really uh, loved it. And I love the fact that financial services is always changing. Um, in my 25 years in the business, um, you know, it's never dull, whether it's, you know, the evolving technology or changing regulatory environment or new products and services or going from domestic to global, all those things just have, uh, you know, fueled my desire to continue to learn, continue to grow and uh, keeps your skills sharp. Um, yeah. You know, in adapting to all this change. And so, um, yeah, so it was a, it was an interesting time in, in my life. And, um, you know, from there I went on to Wachovia where I got the opportunity to go into the security side of the business. And those are my formative years in the trust industry Yep. Um, in North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, coming back to some of your points, and, and this is oftentimes, even though your story is very illustrative, but it, I think it deserves to have a finer point put on to it, which is for people that are younger coming into the financial services industry, I think it's incredibly important to find or to seek positions that will allow you to be surrounded by really smart, driven people that will give you responsibility because the combination of those two things, especially early in your career, are incredibly helpful. You know, when when I think back to my own personal situation, and going into New York City and working at uh, City and Smith Barney, kind of at the height of 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 City success globally, I mean, I was surrounded by people whose resumes were some of the most impressive that I've ever had in my entire career, and just being able to sit there like a sponge and learn from them was so helpful to move me forward versus, and if I'm being you know, somewhat selfish, some of the peers of my own age group that took a job that was very, I guess, specific, paid more, but didn't allow them the exposure to other people. And you've mentioned it a couple times around um, leaning on mentors for guidance. I'm a huge proponent of that as well. I think that you know, in your professional life, your personal life, finding or seeking to find people who have gone through similar experiences and then asking them uh, for help or asking them for guidance is, is really helpful. I mean, same, same job, same company. I can remember one of the top advisors in all of, of Smith Barney. I simply wrote him an email in New York City. I said, I will meet you any day. Uh, any time, and I just want a half hour to to kind of pick your brain. This individual, without fail, said, "Okay, meet me at 6 a.m. on a Monday morning." Now I lived in Brooklyn at the time, was not making a lot of money, so for me to get to Midtown Manhattan for 6 a.m., I had to take, at the time, a fairly expensive cab, and so I show up to the lobby of this advisor, and uh, it's 5:45. And no one's in the building and uh, security's sitting there and says, I have to wait for this advisor to get to the building. Six o'clock comes. 
6.10 comes. He finally shows up. 6.15, he had forgot about the meeting. And I can, I'll never forget his face, how surprised he was to see me there. I don't know if other people had asked or, or if he even thought I would show up, but the fact that I surprised him that I was on time, and I haven't really ever shared this, this part of the story. I knew mentally, at least for that day, I was going to be able to get more than a half hour with him. And it turned out that it was. We, we became uh, fairly close, had, had quite a few meetings. He was, he was really instrumental in just teaching me about uh, the business. He had a lot of ultra high net worth clients. But I think that what you're what you've just shared is is incredibly important for anyone that's listening, particularly if you're younger in financial services, to try to identify uh, mentors that can be helpful and to try to identify positions that will surround you with people that are smarter, more experienced, and candidly better at whatever craft you're trying to uh, trying to achieve or trying to to practice. That is great. Yeah, that is a very valuable lesson. And, you know, that's where, you know, in the military, you come out as a, you know, wet behind the ears, second lieutenant, and you have a lot of knowledge. But what you quickly learn when you go into the regular army is that the NCOs run run the services. And uh, and you quickly learn the difference between knowledge and experience. And, um, yeah. you know, taking your advice and your approach will definitely be helpful to people you know, joining the industry. Gosh, we know we need a lot of talented people to choose financial services um, as a career um, because the industry demographics are changing. And you and I can transfer all the knowledge we've gained over our careers to new people. And then uh, one of my mentors, uh, my commander in Germany, my first assignment, who gave me my first job as a, as a civilian, used to you know, lecture all the officers when they came in on the difference between a professional and a careerist. And um, mm. that lecture still resonates with me today, and I use it even with my people, in that um, there's a difference to how you pursue your career path, and you should really build, you know, upon a body of knowledge and maybe not take the sexier job or take the next higher-paying job. You might be better off making a lateral move um, because over the course of a career, you're better served, um, where you may not be advancing as, as fast, but over the long run, you'll build a body of expertise and experience and knowledge that um, um, you'll end up going a lot further and farther uh, versus, you know, skipping rungs of a ladder and not have the, the depth of knowledge and the experience you need. Because if you slip, you know, you used to say, you, you know, you're going to fall pretty far and pretty hard. Right. And, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, those are good lessons for everybody, uh, considering joining the financial services or if they're in the early stage of their career in the financial services industry, they can use that to help guide them on, you know, all the opportunities that are out there for them in the future. Yeah. I, I try to stress the whole philosophy around intellectual curiosity, more specifically, one of my biggest pet peeves is what I call parroting, where as an individual that's part of an organization, you hear a person in power or you just hear a person state something that may be an opinion or maybe it's even a fact, but then you represent that fact or that opinion in the exact same words as the other person. And maybe they're not even in leadership. Maybe it's just somebody else that's within the organization. And you don't ever seek to understand what's really behind those words. And so I want, I want people, particularly if they're going to represent something, like if I were to say, you know, national advisors trust is a good provider for a whole host of things, including corporate trust services, then I should do some in packaging in my own due diligence, which you know we have, about your company in order to assert that as a fact without question. And of course, there's always gonna be instances where it's, it, that's more challenging to do than not. Sometimes though, I think within our industry, there's a proclivity simply just to repeat something without fully understanding what it is that you're repeating. And that to me is something that I try again to, to promote to people is have a bit of intellectual curiosity. Try to understand what it is that you're positioning, particularly to our clients, 
because I'll use your example. You know, if you jump a couple rungs ahead and, and you're not suited for the job and you don't do well, you're going to fall pretty hard in the same sense. You know, the easiest way to lose any type of respect by your clients or to lose what I would call, quote unquote, uh, relationship control is to assert something that's not true simply because you didn't take the time to investigate further. I think that's really important, particularly dealing with the types of clients that both our companies deal with are fiduciaries, people that are providing financial advice. I mean, they they are very, by their nature, inquisitive, and you've got to be able to answer their questions honestly and not represent something that's that that's false. You're exactly right, because in a lot of cases, that damage could be irreparable. Um, there's nothing that, you know, the most valuable currency we have in our business is your credibility and your character. And, um, you know, those things are at risk if you don't take the time and, like you said, truly learn it versus parrot it. It's a great point. So 20 years after graduating from West Point, you decide to go back to school at the University of Pennsylvania and complete an MSE in management technology. What was it that you saw in the market at that point that made you do that? And how important to you is education in, in one's career? Wow. Yeah. Could you imagine that? You should have seen Susan's reaction when I came home and told her I was going to go to graduate school after 20 years. Uh, you know, compared to my undergrad experience, there was eight terminals in uh, one building at West Point that you could access a mainframe computer. And we got trained in Fortran. And then I walk into uh, the uh, Huntsman Center in University of Pennsylvania for the Wharton School and yeah, with computers everywhere, and it's uh, quite a shock. But, uh, yeah, it's a great life experience I had. And it was really a function of two things. One was out of need, and the other one was opportunity. Um, so I was at SEI um, and had been there for three or four years. I was uh, just recently uh, promoted to become a solutions manager for the private banking and trust division. It's the largest division at SEI at the time, and the CEO, Al West, is a Wharton grad, and um, he had decided to globalize the business. And so I immediately became responsible for outsourced technology, um, outsourced um, investment processing, and asset management solutions distribution um, globally for private banks. So that expanded role, plus um, Al West at the time decided he needed to start developing the wealth management platform of the future. So we're investing heavily in building out a new platform to support uh, wealth managers worldwide. Um, so uh, that was a kind of a clarion call for me to sharpen my knowledge of technology. And, um, you know, we were really shifting and transforming the culture of SEI. I mean, SEI grew because they were a great sales organization um, they grew out of primarily offering software, uh, licensed software out to different financial services intermediaries. And they really were more product centric. So when I was in the solutions role, the company was shifting from a product to a solutions uh, orientation. They were shifting from a software licensor to a services organization. And as I mentioned earlier, they were shifting from a U.S. to a global provider. Um, mm -hmm. So all those things, you know, were kind of the, the drivers behind, hey, uh, um, I have a lot of responsibility in order for me to, you know, perform well and to, you know, deliver for, against results for the company. I needed to sharpen my skills. Um, the opportunity came because... SEI had sponsored a Center for Advanced Studies of Management for years at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of my mentors while I was at SEI was Jerry Wind. He's a renowned marketing professor at Wharton, and he roams the halls of SEI, um, making himself a sounding board and uh, an advisor 
to people who have business ideas, and he's kind of Al West's eyes and ears um, when it comes to uh, promoting his business initiatives, his strategy, and his cultural transformation. So he was very influential in convincing me that it made sense to do it. And uh, I had to make the personal commitment to take every other Friday and Saturday and uh, go to school and uh, at the same time maintain my full-time responsibilities. So my family had to sacrifice a great deal during this time frame, but um, it was a great, great experience. Just, uh, you know, what they tell you your first day in the Wharton program is, you know, there's lots of great schools around the country. You can get equivalent types of education, but the difference is who's sitting to the left and right of you. So the people I met, the professional network I built, um, and just the the knowledge we gained not only academically, but the nice part about an executive program is you bring that knowledge back to work with you right? and can apply a lot of it. And um, just with my study group alone, uh, we did a number of field projects. Um, you know, one was for Motorola, where we did a recommendation on how they could um, apply mobile technology. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't take our recommendations. If they had, <laughs> they would have dominated the industry at the time. Um, but, uh, but it was it was a great, uh, great uh, personal as well as a professional experience, and it helped me. It changed the, my career trajectory. Um, that that uh, SEI at the time, as well as uh, has opened up doors later on that uh, probably wouldn't have been open for me had I not done it. So, great experience for me. Yeah, I mean it's interesting as as well. I mean there's lots of things from that that story that you know that I picked up on, but one of the things <clears throat> that comes up a lot in, in different types of conversations is just around sacrifice, right? In order to in order to be able to do the graduate work and maintain your your job, you needed to to sacrifice, you know, Friday and Saturdays, which are days, but also related to those days or time with with family and friends. And you know, I think about <clears throat> I went to this conference once, and there was a speaker, and he got up on the stage and he put a slinky between his two hands and he held the slinky and his hands were, were level. And he said that people often talk about balance with balance. And he used the metaphor, just the actual, the prop of the slinky, you really don't move anywhere. It's just in order for you to achieve certain things, particularly things that are important, big projects, one side of the the hand goes up and the other side goes down because you're not going to be able to have balance if you're going to try to do something extraordinary or just something meaningful, whatever that is. So when I talk to different people and they ask, you know, what are the things that you think about, you know, within life? And it's, it's that concept is that there's a facade around balance, not that it's a bad facade, it's just a facade. You cannot have a fully balanced life in which you're able to do all the different things, have an active social life, have an active family life, have an active professional life, have an active uh, education, just name all those things. There's no balance, like something has to take precedent. And as a professional and as a human being over the course of your life, you're gonna make decisions as to what will be those things that are important to you. And at that time in your life, whatever those things that you put importance on, the other things will be somewhat out of balance. Now that doesn't mean that you can't offset it. That doesn't mean that you you can't have intense focus on your family and friends when you're doing a, a graduate program, but it also means there's less time and that needs to be discussed and you need to understand the commitment that you're making and everyone should do that. So. I don't know if, if your interactions with, with some of your employees or, or family members, like if you talk about that concept or balance or, you know, how you conceive it within your life over historical perspective. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, I tend to use the, uh, I guess a common term now is work-life integration because it's an acknowledgement yeah. that to achieve balance, you're, you are making a trade-off and, um, 
you should do it consciously. Uh, so to achieve balance, you, you you pretty much have to just concede that, you know, it's really a falsehood. Right. Uh, it gives you a false impression that it's imbalanced. So the integration is important, and that's why, you know, we culturally used the term earlier. Um, the first item on our um, interview list is intellectual curiosity. We rate that the highest yep. um, for cultural fit. And, um, yeah, we do a pretty rigorous screening process for professional skills and experience, but, you know, most people have that. You can you can validate that pretty quickly. So we spend most of our time on the other 50% waiting, which is um, the soft skills and cultural fit and EQ and intellectual curiosity, all the things, you know, that have come up in our conversation today. Um, and to me, I always look at the lifelong commitment to learning. Um, you know, it's uh, military has a lot of stereotypes applied to it, but it is the best uh, training and education organization in the world. I mean, you think about the numbers of people that they have to take in and immediately transform them in a matter of weeks and to get them proficient in their tasks and uh, their job responsibilities. But most importantly, it taught me that, um, you know, concepts today that in business we adopt to as best practices like after action reviews. Well, those, right. you know, those were done in the military 75 years ago. Um, and they're just tried and true practices. And uh, I'm also a devotee of Stephen Covey. Yep. And, you know, sharpen your tools is a key concept that he, uh, he promotes. And um, it all matters in the end, because for the people that are listening to this, you're trying to think about how they achieve scale. How do they make their business more efficient? Um, how do you grow um, and grow your people along with it? Um, the, the fuel that makes that all happen is knowledge and learning. And so um, and today, uh, compared to when I started my career, the information that's available at your fingertips, it's uh, so accessible. Um, and, um, you know, if you've committed and you devote the time and you have some self-discipline, um, you can learn a lot. And if you work for the right company, that lets you have opportunities, whether that's a project assignment or a new role or the ability to sit in on a, a meeting, whatever the case may be, um, you can transfer that knowledge into experience. And that is the most important part of achieving scale in our industry. And uh, quite frankly, it's a concern of mine. Um, you know, as the demographics change and, you know, it gets more knowledge intensive and we get more reliant upon sophisticated technologies as we digitize the businesses, um, it's going to put a premium on having a lot of experience and a lot of depth of knowledge that uh, we'll need to make sure we invest the right amount of time and, and money into our people in the years ahead. Yeah. I think interwoven within what you just said is a really important concept of doing the little things right. I mean, I, I, and I'm sure based on your background, I, again, I, I'm, this is an assumption, but I don't think it's a, it's a very great one is that little things like showing up on time and being prepared for a meeting and uh, making sure that, you know, you are, you're acting in a manner that is, you know, professional. A lot of times, you know, not everyone feels the same way about those things, but it, it does matter because you know, being on time for me is just a symbol of respect. Like you're respecting the other people that are attending a meeting or a call by showing up on time and sure things happen. So every once in a while, it's okay to to not be on time. But if you create a culture in which, you know, the little things are not important, and I'm not talking about micromanaging, to me, micromanaging, micromanagement or micromanaging is where, you know, you don't allow people to, to make mistakes and grow and thrive. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about building a bedrock of principles that other people can see are true of the entire organization, not just the rank and file, not just the, the analysts in, in the program, but 
you know, all the way up the chain, being able to do the little things right does matter. And it shows that you care. It shows that you care about other people and that you care about the company deeply. And so, um, you know, that that's one of the things that's really important to me is that, you know, as, as an industry, we have an opportunity to, to do a lot of really great things moving forward. I, I couldn't agree more with the point around being able to build up knowledge and experience. And I couldn't agree more with the point that you made earlier. Sometimes that means staying within an organization if it's the right fit and taking a lateral move so that you can expand or, you know, sharpen your tools rather than leapfrog from place to place, which I think has become somewhat of a popular habit for for different um, cohorts of people in order to get paid more. I don't want to get paid more money in an organization doing a job that I have no business being in. To me, that would be the scariest thing. If I woke up tomorrow morning and you said, I'll give you double your salary, but you're going to know or not be able to to, to function in half of the things you have to do on a daily basis, I think that would be bad. I don't think that that would be a very good thing to do. But I also believe that that's something that that's happening more and more within the workforce in the United States. It is. It is. And it's, it's a you know, big concern of mine. And that's why I'm a big believer in all these fundamentals, as you say, and little details. Um, I think we've seen it. Um, you know, culture and values, um, eternal principles, um, these things have meaning. And I think they've been exposed. Uh, the importance of these things have been exposed during this crisis. Yeah. Because, as, you know, people are working remotely. And if you had a weak culture, um, and you, unless you had real-time perfect communication, uh, you know, you, you couldn't rely upon people to, and without specific guidance, you have to exercise judgment. And to, what you look to in those times are norms and values and these types of intangibles that, um, you know, serve as kind of your true north. Right. And you don't lose your way if you can't communicate with somebody or if you have extended lines of communication um, that you feel comfortable, you know your boundaries and your authorities. And then you also know when to, you know, not make a decision and escalate it. And so um, it's uh, it's one of those things that uh, we had those, you know, stark reminders where some of our new employees who hadn't been here for a while, it was obvious um, because they needed, you know, more time and attention working remotely than some of the people had been here a while and were more comfortable and knew their boundaries and understood our values and. You know, the powerful thing from the military is always, you know, what's the commander's intent? So if you don't have specific instructions, if you don't understand that, then typically, you know, the majority of the time you're going to make decisions that may not be the best one, but they're not wrong as long as you're operating within the intent. And that's kind of a one of our lessons learned, you know, throughout this whole COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, I agree. And that's a really, really great point is – you know, for, again, individuals that are, whether you're young or just listening to try to, in this environment where there may not be, or there isn't going to be as much hand-on direction to ask the question around what is the overall mission of the organization, the intent of the individuals guiding the organization, and will your action fulfill those things is a, is a really, really interesting and, and good point. I'd like to finish by saying I'm very proud of uh, the relationship that our two companies have built. I look forward to continued partnership with you and and all the individuals at, at National Advisors Trust. And I want to personally thank you for spending some time with me today. This has been a, a really good discussion. I've enjoyed it uh, very, very much. And, um, and again, I just want to say thanks, Jim. I really appreciate you taking out of your, uh, some time out of your day because I know that you're very busy. No, no, and uh, thank you. I've learned a lot, and your insights and your takeaways are just as important to me, and we're really proud to be one of your partners, and um, we both have that shared mission of helping advisors grow and taking good care of clients, and um, that's why it's a joy to come in to work every day. So thanks again for the opportunity, Austin. 
enjoyed the time together today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. And a special thank you to Jim Combs, CEO of National Advisors Trust. Remember, please subscribe and listen to all of the Powering Independence podcasts.